This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna Padkiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Alshima, Sama, and Gurpinder, who are the editors of the book School Farms Feeding and Educating Children, published by Rutledge in 2020. Well, Alshima is an assistant professor at Zapazik University, Egypt. Her research interest lies in urban sustainability and ecological psychology, which concerns human responsive reactions and sustainable behavior within the built environment. She endeavors to continue investigations into the development of new urban measures to promote sustainable urban alternatives to contribute to cleaning the environment and eliminating the impact of the climate change crisis, joining with jointly with creating healthy and human-oriented public spaces where people live and work, enjoying a healthy life. Sama is an associate professor at architecture and urban design at Mansoura University, Egypt. She has worked in both the academic and research fields for 18 years, where her research interests lie in livable cities, human-friendly urban environments, and urban conservation. Gurpinder is a reader in education for social justice and inclusion, and a member of the Education Observatory based in the School of Education at the University of Wolverhampton. His research is focused on food and social justice in education. I'm glad to welcome all three of you to this conversation and very thankful for taking time out. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Yeah. So just to begin the conversation, if I could ask you, Alshima, uh, to talk a little bit about the objectives behind putting this volume together. Okay. First, thank you for inviting us for this uh, podcast and let us give us an opportunity to talk about uh, our book, which is, I believe it's very important nowadays in the current time. And okay, before starting our book, um, actually all of us had interest on the idea of farming and the idea of involving students in the process of producing food, a healthy food. But our objective is to highlight the potential, the significant potential of the school farm in several areas. 
It's important for health. It's important for quality of life, climate change, uh, enhancing air quality. It's important for education, reducing transportation, and many, many areas. But our concern in our uh, book is to highlight two important and relevant ideas or aspects. First, coming out of the need to provide alternative resource of food to feed unprivileged students, especially in the globe south, where people um, face the pressing pressure of hunger and malnutrition, and they really need to have such solutions, sustainable solutions. And this issue is actually very, very clear in the current situation of COVID-19. All of us hear about countries facing this problem of uh, providing food. The second topic is about the benefit of a school farm in providing um, high level or high standard of education that let students learn about food resources and develop their farming skills and sustainable behaviors. Okay, we wanted to provide like a comprehensive approach of school farming to combine theory with hands-on experience, provide uh, by multidisciplinary authors, actually contacted several authors from different disciplines, like farmers, from organizations, academia, and research. So we can um, like prepare a complete meal about um, the, topic of a school farm or the idea of a school farm? I hope I answered your question. Right. So thank you for uh, setting the introductory tone. Uh, just very quickly, Sama, to ask yes. you, you know, about the main sections of the book. And as I read it, I saw that it's divided into four main sections. So yes. Please uh, talk a little bit about, you know, the main themes of these sections so that our listeners get a sense of the book. Okay. Uh, first, we have uh, four main sections, as you mentioned, uh, the problem, people, uh, process, and place. Um, as all of us know that hunger is one of the biggest challenges facing our world today. So the book explains how school farms can provide students with healthy food and give them the chance to learn about nature and to give readers a better understanding of school farms. The book discusses the four main pillars um, regarding to the school farm. The four main pillars, I talked about them, people, problem, uh, process, and place. Starting uh, with the problem, in this section, the concept of school farms is explored from two perspectives. First, as a tool to, to reduce food shortage worldwide, and second, as a way to connect the children and their food resources through education and direct experience. Uh, the people section displays innovative examples of the involvement of students in a school gardening programs and the many benefits students gain from participating in farm-based education. Readers also can read about the school farm network and other significant initiatives in this section, the people section. Here in the process section, innovative ideas for improving school education with farming are discussed. 
Also, it helps students learn how to grow their own food to increase their interest in fresh and healthy food. Lastly, the place section provides guidelines for designing and building school farms. Uh, it shows how urban spaces can be used for productive planting and how sustainability, food security, and environmental quality can all be woven into educational spaces without compromising their functionality. Uh, the book also has case studies from different schools around the world who have developed school farms using innovative techniques. The cases are divided into 14 chapters. So to, to simplify things and avoid any confusion, they have all been grouped around the four pre-mentioned themes. Uh, is it fine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Sama. Uh, Thank you. To bring you to the discussion, Gurpinder, uh, if you could you know, talk a little bit about the major methodological orientations that the contributors have used since the book is so interdisciplinary in nature, that would really help. Absolutely. Thank you for the question. So the book covers education, sociology, psychology, and geography, amongst many other disciplines. But the way in which the book is structured places a focus on the complex relationship between problems, people, processes, and place. The focus of topics are developed on food security, children's psychological well-being, experiential learning, inclusion, ecology, urban, urban farming and land use. So the typical methods that have been used include qualitative research, ethnography, and case study, just to name a few. The focus on farm-based education really lends itself to this co-constructive opportunity to engage with local communities. And the case study work and the collection that this book brings together is very much not just an interdisciplinary um, approach that's been taken, but it's transdisciplinary. So it's engaging with, you know, spaces outside of academia, which is where, you know, why it's very unique. The work on urban spaces offers new methodological insights. So the case studies across the world are particularly insightful in bringing together key critical discussions, which are methodologically grounded and robust. Right. So since you talked about the school farm, uh, you know, Alshima, if you could talk a little bit about how it has become such a vital space for social learning. Actually, school farm is not an it is an educational model. It is not only about um, providing students with proper nutrition. It is mainly about educating them about food resources. It's about learning by doing. Um, so they, the student can get involved with an authentic educational experience where they learn to grow seeds, they learn to harvest, cook food, enjoy eating together, they contact with nature, they see and the best animals, they can ride animals like bony rice, for example, they can feed them, they can contact with farmers and the kitchen chefs and learn from them. Um, they work together. So it is a complete learning experience combining an authentic outdoor environment with regular class lessons. Um, this could relate to many subjects such as math, art, language, could be related to science also. So um, from this, they can contact or the school farm can contribute to developing the social skills 
uh, of students while they working with their peers, while they working with teachers, with community. They develop their teamwork skills, observation. They raise awareness about sustainable solutions. They develop their sustainable attitude and, and so on. Thank you. Right. So, uh, Gurpinder, again, to bring you back, uh, if you could talk about how the school farm historically has emerged as a model to fight issues of you know, hunger and malnutrition. Absolutely. Again, very interesting to look at the historical perspective here. So as far as I'm aware, the farm to school movement began in the late 1990s. Um, of course, it would date back much more historically, but more notably, and the coverage that it's received is something I'd like to talk about here. So it was the late 1990s when a handful of schools across the country started responding to the rising levels of processed food in the cafeterias. This is more from a kind of a US perspective. So Farm to School is a program in the United States through which schools buy and feature um, locally pro produced fresh farm fresh foods such as dairy, fruits and vegetables, eggs, honey, meat and beans on their menus. I mean, since then, the movement has grown exponentially. So now more than 42% of schools nationwide hosting some form of farm to school programming, according to the US Department of Agriculture, farm to school census. This number translates to 23.6 million students participating in programs and an estimated $789 million um, of funds being spent on local food procurement which is a far cry from the, the movement's grassroots beginnings. So there are now more than 120 school farms in the UK, right? Um, and I'm reporting under the context I know. All school farms provide opportunities for all pupils to gain experience of farm livestock and varying proportions of student population actively engaged in practical tasks. So the way I introduced above, in terms of hunger, this has become a notable issue globally and much more discussions have started to take place, which are underreported in other regions and the globalized South. But the issues differ, right, between you know globalized North and South, of course, and, and these need to be, you know, the much more research needs to be done in those areas. Right. So, Saman, you talk about school roof farms, and how do you think their role has been significant in raising awareness about issues of sustainability, particularly amongst the younger generation. Yeah, right. Um, as we all know, sustainability consists of three main pillars, environmental, social, and economic. Uh, using the school roof farm, students can practice and learn about those three pillars. The roof farm is considered a living classroom uh, where students can learn about plants, animals, and ecosystems. Different kinds of plants, such as herbs, vegetables, and fruits, are grown on the roof garden, attracting bees and butterflies and other insects, which enhances biodiversity. The roof farm can also be used to build fish bones that serves as habitats for both fish and turtles. Furthermore, migratory birds visit the pond to drink and eat fish and so on. So the roof garden are also a great place to set up like um, um, a laboratory or something to watch birds uh, passing through. 
As an added bonus, the green roof reduces the energy consumption since it acts as an insulator, reducing the need for air conditioning and helps filter the air. Plus, using local and recycled materials in constructing those green roofs means less CO2 emissions. And also maintaining uh, green roofs is more affordable because uh, the dependence of recycled wastewater in irrigation. On the other hand, green roofs have a lot of social benefits. Uh, it brings students, parents, teachers, and community members together to plant, harvest, and ex exchange agricultural knowledge. And also green roofs can be used for different social events and concerts. Um, in the economic side, as an example of the roof farm uh, economic benefits, the edibles harvested by the children are used for their daily lunches or daily meals, as an example. Thank you. All right. So again, to come back to you, Gurbinda, uh, what do you think would be some of the crucial you know, issues today in school gardening and then engaging food education within the curriculum? Thank you again for the question. Very interesting. Um, when we think about food education in the curriculum. So it's helpful to learn from examples in other contexts outside of the UK, which of course is more immediate to me. We have good examples of gardening and food education in schools. Uh, and this area continues to grow in the UK. Um, but, but outside of the UK, for example, scholars from Norway, Italy, United States and India, to name a few, discuss um, the kind of the potential of, of school gardening in, in engaging children with education and curriculum. The critical issues are in the logistics and framing such ideas which needs to come from school leaders and then filtered into the school culture. In terms of food education in the curriculum, currently design and technology is offered in secondary schools in the UK and food falls within this space. So it doesn't have an independent space of its own. However, food can be introduced across a number of subject areas such as science, history, math, and English. Moving forward, a review of curriculum would be useful. And the recent introduction of the government's white paper in the UK highlights the importance of introducing sensory food education. So we, we have seen pockets of places and spaces in schools who do use do take advantage of engaging in food education in the curriculum, but sometimes it's about a lack of resource, right? Um, and those are the kind of issues that prevent such opportunities from taking place. Mm, right. Though, Alshima, uh, would it be possible to talk a little bit about the relationship between disability and school farming? Um, okay. Uh, first, I would like to clarify important terms before telling you about that relationship. Um, um, disability and impairments. Impairments, as we know, it's a problem with a body uh, the person could face any time through the whole life, okay? But disability is a feeling, the feeling that the person faced when find barriers, discrimination, deprivation, and could be due to the community attitude, could be due to the technology difficulties or uh, the built environment. So concerning the built environment, designing for, for disability means removing all barriers 
built barriers that person with impairment could face so they feel more disabled. Another important term is inclusion. Inclusion is another term, it's a broader definition concerning designs that fit all persons with all abilities and disabilities. So they together, they feel together, one community, they feel justice and equity. The school farm as an authentic interactive learning environment provides multi-activities for students. It allows all students to participate and learn together physically, sensorily, and mentally. It allows them to learn and enjoy by doing, thinking, feeling, and being themselves. Actually, there are many studies show the positive impact of green areas or farming activities on the students with impairment or without, like therapeutic effect, for example, like enhancing academic performance. But as an inclusive uh, school farm, it has many other advantages. One of them, being near to plants or animals without any barriers, help students to stimulate their senses and to maximize sensory experience, um, especially with those students with visual or hearing or senses impairment, for example. The most important one is um, working with peers, enhance the social skills and build empathy and respect and um, reduce discriminatory attitude in the coming generations. All students together have the chance to learn together, play, enjoy with plants, enjoy with animals together with several activities in the school farm. And this is very important for them to build a, a robust uh, or strong uh, relationship. They feel like they complement each other with diverse skills and diverse abilities they have. They, they like feel safe together if the built environment cares about all. So this is the relationship between um, having inclusive built environment and uh, uh, the farming activities providing the school farm. Thank you. Right. Since we're talking about uh, food, education, and the curriculum, Gurbinda, you do talk about breakfast clubs in your chapter, which is something that I found very interesting. So if you could talk a little bit about how they have improved nutrition in schools. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to note is school, school food policy is not consistent, even across the UK, you know, in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And, and more specifically in breakfast clubs, again, there's no real consistency. Some schools have access to them, others don't. Some have funding opportunities to, to offer breakfast, others don't. In schools, which are located in socio-economically deprived spaces, um, what I found was that a lot of the young people do talk about you know, the, the benefits of having breakfast in school. And actually, some of the breakfast clubs, um, you know, the, the way they look in particular, some of them have breakfast in class, right? Others have used the dining hall for breakfast. And again, you know, the schools that do offer breakfast has, has had, have had benefits for children who might not have had access to food in the morning, right? Um, and introducing fruit in the morning in particular is a great initiative and provides children with access to healthy, a healthier start to the day. And in the UK, we've got, we've got a growing interest in this area of work and that continues to grow. Um, but I think 
you know, and it's also giving children the, the, the responsibility. So, for example, they, they have milk monitors, they have fruit monitors in school, which by that what I mean is that children are given the responsibility of looking after the fruits and vegetables that are available, for example, um, throughout the school day, but in the morning with fruit and toast, you know, available um, and juice, for example, for children. It's certainly, you know, the teachers have reported that it has a massive impact on the children's engagement in the opening lessons of, of school. Um, and we, we know this anecdotally, of course, but um, it, it seems to be a common, a common message that actually a lot more schools are pushing for introducing breakfast opportunities, not so much clubs, but more so breakfast opportunities. Um, and, and in terms of breakfast clubs, lots of pilot work has been done and intervention work in the past. And they have, they have seen notable benefits, but unfortunately, um, you know, with the lack of funding and the lack of kind of commitment from government to, 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 to do such, offer such initiatives has meant that third sector organizations have come in to try and fill that void and offer breakfast. So, you know, we have a lot of political challenges, unfortunately, um, and these are becoming widespread globally. Right. So again, coming back to you, Sama, you talk about the school roof farm project and in your chapter, you also look at it in terms of a geographical spread in several locations. Do you think yeah. that there are certain common challenges that the school roof farm project faces? Uh, actually, yes. There are common challenges among all the cases studied. Uh, the cost was initially the biggest challenge. However, funds provided by governmental and non-governmental organizations, volunteering work and participation by schools and community members helped overcome this problem. Uh, furthermore, unused materials from the school were reused to build the gardens on the roof. And also um, this technique cuts, cuts the cost. The second challenge uh, was the building's construction system and the roof's bearing weight, uh, which limited the amount of soil and infrastructure that could be planted. Uh, but thanks to new technologies, the roofs could be supported by lightweight growing media that fit the roof's bearing weight. <clears throat> also, environmental conditions posed challenges like high wind speed and direct sun exposure for long periods uh, affect plants' diversity uh, but uh, experts advise and give studies about plants that can handle such extreme conditions help solve uh, those problems. Thank you. All right. So last question to all three of you as editors of this very exciting book. What would be some recommendations for schools, policymakers and educators for thinking about school farms and the transformative potential that they have in making the world a better place. I'm asking the three of you this question because I know that apart from being academics, you're also into policymaking and research. So it would be very exciting to know, you know, your takes. So if we could begin with Alshima, Sama, and then Gurpinder. Okay. For me, I would recommend uh, thinking about school farm for researchers and academia. Actually, I believe this is a very rich area to explore with research. 
there are new areas, there are areas of technologies to explore, areas of sustainability, climate change, participatory approaches, COVID-19, urban planning and transportation, reducing CO2, health and nutrition, actually many, many areas and opportunities for research. So this is the first recommendation. The second, for school uh, manager to take the benefit and advantage of school funds uh, of involving students in this uh, rich learning uh, experience, um, I believe that it makes the student mature and responsible and they feel uh, belong to their communities. It, it enhances their academic performance. And there are many examples of that even in Africa and Europe that has um, started even with limited, very limited resources. Uh, finally, I would recommend thinking about the school farms um, uh, for architect, architects and urban developers uh, to use areas of a smart and uh, solutions, smart solutions and sustainable solution involved in the school farm spaces, uh, which will enrich the, uh, the environment, the built environment of the schools and make it better places for students uh, to live and study and uh, Built like responsible citizens. That's all. Thank you. Sama? Mm, yeah, yes. Uh, let me begin with the policymakers. Uh, I think they should recognize the importance of school farms first, uh, not just as educational tools, but also as a source of healthy food uh, for children and for the wider community. Uh, thus, they should invest money and resources into setting up school farms around the world. Uh, furthermore, the government should encourage community participation and individual initiatives in school farming. Finally, we must recognize that we are all on the same planet, and therefore high-income countries need to support low-income ones for the benefit of both. Uh, and as educators, we must create curriculums and develop uh, our teaching methods to teach children how important farming is and the different techniques of agriculture. In addition to this theoretical background, the students should have the opportunity also to engage in the practice of farming in their schools. Thank you. Right. So, uh, Gulpinder, uh, what would you add to the conversation? Thank you so much again uh, for this opportunity, first of all. And um, <laughs> first of all, I'd like to just highlight the importance of the points that Alshima and Sam have made. I cannot emphasize those enough, uh, particularly the point about the high income countries supporting um, those in lower income countries in developing in a developing context. Um, I would say personally, just based on experience, expertise and speaking with um, researchers, young people, policymakers. I think a joined up approach, which includes co-construction in research and community work is absolutely crucial. If we are see, to see any real change here, where we transfer and translate the academia to the real world, if you like, um, which is often what is missed. We need to take account of contextual, contextual differences, right? Whatever works in one place is not necessarily going to work in another. That's crucial. We can't, we've got to take those assumptions. We've got to try and strip down the assumptions, strip them back assumptions. We need resources, infrastructure, economic stability, community cohesion in order to help fight hunger and malnutrition. The other thing I wanted to mention, which is quite important actually, is thinking of um, 
decolonization work and post-colonial work and thinking in terms of food, you know, and what's the norm, you know, challenging those stereotypes. That is interesting, an interesting area. And these are the kind of complex sociological questions and thinking that needs to go behind, behind and inform policymaking in future, um, especially with vulnerable communities. So, you know, those are my kind of takeaway points. Um, and yeah, thank you again for the opportunity to talk. Thank you so much to the three of you. It was truly a pleasure listening to the conversation. I learned a lot and I hope that our listeners also do the same. Thank you once again for taking time out and effort on a Saturday to do this. Thank you. It's our thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.